Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Jacob Dalkey, the director of Nebraska Medicine's Office of Healthcare Ethics. Our conversation today is being recorded via Skype. Today, we are going to talk about the coronavirus pandemic and some of the ethical challenges it has created. Jacob Dalkey is a clinical ethicist and the director of the Office of Healthcare Ethics at Nebraska Medicine. Jacob is a graduate of the bioethics program at Union Graduate College, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and has contributed to the medical ethics field at the Vermont Ethics Network, the University of Vermont Medical Center, the University of Colorado Center for Bioethics and Humanities, and Creighton University's Center for Health Policy and Ethics. Jacob has been a guest on the show before, and you can listen back to the podcast of that show from July 2019. Our conversation today is being recorded via Skype. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. I guess the first question has to be, um, can you share what is happening in your professional life right now? That is a good question. Um, you know, I, a part of a major part of my role uh, at Nebraska Medicine as the as the ethics director is to manage our ethics consultation service. That's a service that's available uh, throughout the hospital, um, available to doctors and nurses and and patients and family members, um, and that has uh, almost completely ceased. <laughs> Um, a large, a large percentage of my day right now um, revolves around this this pandemic planning, and and really it's a matter of of planning, and, and that's the primary reason why it's taking up so much of my time. Is as you can imagine, um, with any particular healthcare system or even uh, individual facility like a hospital, um, there are so many different things that go into play um, when we have to make radical changes. Uh, to prepare for something like this, um, you know, everything from how we go about making medical decisions, but also how do we get food and how do we take out the trash and and who is going to be cleaning the, the beds. And so there's a there's a, an enormous amount of planning that goes into it. So, yeah, I, I think 90 uh, percent of my day is is around this in some some fashion. Is there an example you know, from this week that perhaps sticks in your mind of, of the kind of thing um, that would illustrate these questions that are coming up. The, the only reason I'm pausing is, is you asked me for one example, and I have to filter through the, the dozens of, of meetings that I've been attending uh, the last couple of days. But the area that I, I am spending the, the majority of my time, um, you know, again, as a, as a clinical ethicist, as the ethics director, one of the groups that I'm I'm on is is we're talking about what's known as cr uh, crisis standards of care, which, in very difficult situations, are are the new normal. Not to say that this is permanently normal, but but in a period of crisis, the way we go about making decisions sometimes has to change. We wouldn't choose for them to be this way, but due to the circumstances, they have to be. And so, you know, we often talk about that as, as sort of a triage type of scenario where we have to we have to very quickly um, make some very potentially difficult decisions and in order to to best equip the people that have to make those decisions the better planned we are uh, the better off we're all going to be after after the fact and so 
uh, a lot of the time has been discussing and planning how do we go about preparing our, our staff and our workers um, for those possibilities. The situation has been described this way, and it feels a little bit like um, you know fear mongering in some sense, and maybe overreaching or overreacting in others. But the comparison that I've I've heard is it it feels like wartime. We're instituting, for example, legal frameworks that you know were last used during the Korean War, for example, and some of these situations we're confronted by. Uh, opposing some of those life and death, literally life and death uh, frameworks that none of us really anticipated being in. And I I wonder if it is fair to uh, think about this, think about some of the questions you're having to deal with, the situations you're having to deal with or advise on, as if this is um, as extreme as a war setting. I do think it's fair, honestly. Um, It's it's, uh, sort of counterintuitive, uh, I acknowledge for even me to me, me to say that because I tend to to try to avoid using wartime terminology in healthcare. Um, I think that's sort of misleading at times. You know, when we talk about the the war on cancer and beating cancer and losing to cancer, and, and I, I wish there were better ways that we could discuss those things. Having said that, this is a totally different situation. The way that we need to mobilize all of our resources to counter what could potentially not wipe us out as humanity, right? That's not what this is about, but but there are going to be some significant infrastructural damages that could, that could be done if we don't adequately prepare, which is what happens in war. And so I, I do think it's a fair comparison. Of course, it's not exact, but at the same time, you know, we are finding ourselves having to mobilize and figure out how we're going to defeat a common enemy. And that is, um, that doesn't go away, you know, regardless of the fact that um, this particular enemy is one one hundredth the width of our hair. The actual virus itself is, is you know, biologically minuscule, um, but this is a pandemic as mm-hmm. the World Health Organization has declared it. So we're in a, you know, a global situation. Um we were uh, engaged in correspondence before mm-hmm. our conversation and everybody in the world and, and certainly um, locally in our community and certainly in the healthcare field are having to wrestle with ethical issues that we perhaps hadn't anticipated. And I thought you and I might just perhaps grab some of those and yeah, engage sure. just in a dialogue around what might this mean. One of the topics that we'd, we'd mentioned was the ethics of social isolation and the harms are not spread equally. And that could, for example, be how do we balance the economic impacts of businesses going bankrupt or workers not being paid or being terminated, already disadvantaged populations. But then we have this urgent, urgent need to control an international contagious disease so how do we how do we make choices in those conflicting scenarios i think the the first thought that i have about that that's a very complicated question which i'm sure warrants a complicated answer which means you're not going to get it from me but um (laughs) uh these are the types of situations where we have to rely on very strong leadership 
And I, I, I think people are, are grappling with that challenge right now as to where do we find that kind of leadership. The reason I say that is because we, especially in America, right, especially in the United States of America, we put a very high value on individual rights. And, and I think that's appropriate. I, I have no challenges to that or, or disputes with that. But um, in moments of crisis and, and in a situation like, for example, this pandemic, it puts a significant strain, I think, on how we ought to view those individual rights. Because as much as I value my own individual rights, we are humans who are social animals and we are members of a community with which we have an acknowledged sort of contract with that community that we do certain things a certain way and, and receive certain things in return. And that tends to uh, supersede the individual in moments of crisis like this. And so as we apply that to things like social distancing, is it what I want to do? Of course not. Is it, is it what I feel like I'm going to have to do? Yeah. And, and, and we, you know, we talked already about the new normal. Um, I, I heard someone say, you know, with regards to the social distancing, um, if it feels weird, that means you're doing it right. Right. If you're, if you're quote unquote doing social distancing or practicing social distancing and it feels great and normal, you're not doing it right. You know, it's supposed to be weird because, because we're social people and, and, and our communities even are, are built around social interactions. And so, this particular enemy in this particular war um, requires us to do things out of the ordinary. said something there about about individual rights and and leadership I, i'm curious about that um because social distancing should feel weird it should feel awkward and i i like that i, I like that as a guiding uh, piece of advice and i'm trying to connect that back to this idea that we we do prize individual rights but but when is it appropriate for us to say we have to forsake our individual rights or we have to have the willingness to see those compromised because the um, communal right takes precedence in some way. What is acceptable and what should we be prepared to forsake individually? Hey, you, you bring up a, a really great point and I don't, I don't know if I have a, a response to it, you know, but it moments like these sort of make me ask the question as to what, how absolute are rights? You know, if I say I have the right to X, Y, or Z, that right only extends as long as we're not in a pandemic against COVID-19, right? <laughs> and, and so they, there's a real tension there. And, and um, you know, so I, 
I think we 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 sort of operate on a day to day basis as though these rights that we have or claim to have um, are absolute. Of course, I have this right, um, but it moments like these make me make me question whether that's actually true. Do we have the right to just do whatever we want? Should there be some sort of social consequence or perhaps even legal consequence to putting others at risk? Um, I, I think that's a legitimate question. I, I don't have I don't have the answer for that, but I but I think it does um, it, it does bring up a very difficult dilemma. The local authorities, for example, in Florida, having to close beaches and bars more by order than suggestion or request to people's common sense because people are enjoying um, either spring break and completely ignoring the uh, principle of social distancing as a way to flatten the curve, as the expression goes. Who's right? If you were the mayor of that city, would you be closing beaches? Or if you're the uh, individual party go on the beach would you be objecting to that order and and how do we make a decision fairly you had to bring up florida didn't you <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think it was very irresponsible to have uh left the beaches open because the i, I think I, I obviously was not privy to those conversations but i think the primary driver for that decision was likely a financial one um, and I think what we've started to see already is that the financial component of this is going to work itself out, right? I don't know what that looks like, and I'm sure we're still going to have massive problems when it comes to uh, equality and equal distribution and um, how much are the rich going to get versus how much are the poor going to get. Uh, those are unresolved, and those are very real problems. But in a strange sort of way... Uh, I'm, I'm less concerned about that because I can always make more money, right? We can just create the, the concept of more money as we need it. Is that responsible? I'm no economist, so I, I don't know that. But, um, but I know it's possible. When people die, you can't change that. And so if we're, if we're putting this, uh, you know, this notion of human cost versus businesses cost and, and their, their preservation and, and everything like that, I, I don't see those as being equal comparisons. You are in a particular environment where people are being asked to balance, I think, um, this on a micro scale, but but a very high stakes one. Mm -hmm. And so in the microcosm of the hospital and, and the health clinics, you have um, what is essentially a, a contained society, as it were, but also there are individuals within there that have their own rights. Mm -hmm. And it could be the healthcare providers, it could be patients, it could be family members. And so in that context that you're working with every day with healthcare ethics, why should I, for example, as a member of the public, why should any patient there, why is it that their ethics trump, for example, those of the healthcare providers? Why should I expect, why do I have an ethical expectation that the healthcare provider is going to be there to treat any kind of illness that I have? I think where, where you're, you're going with that, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, in, these, in these moments of, of crisis and we, we operate under um, sort of these, these different standards, 
regardless of whether we're in moments of crisis or or, or not, um, there's often this notion of um, promoting doing the most amount of good for the most amount of people. Um, and in these crises, when these standards of care um, are, are made to be changed, that tends to take a, a higher priority than than normal. And so when we consider that, when we when we start applying that to these new decision-making processes, one thing that, that tends to emerge is um, how do we go about saving the most amount of lives, you know, in this particular pandemic? And I think one of the answers, it's not the answer, but one of, one of the responses at least is healthcare workers have a particular premium attached to them in this moment of crisis. Not that their life is any more valuable than others, but their opportunity to save more lives is likely greater than a person in the general public. And so we, we often will consider how do we protect them in a, in a way that might dedicate more resources to them per capita than to the general public, is that equal? It's definitely not equal, but it tends to be considered fair because it it dedicates the appropriate amount of resources to the people that is going to promote the most amount of lives. So that this discussion is, is pretty common right now, and um, if you read any stories from Italy especially, but, but even New York and Seattle, and I think, unfortunately, soon to be Florida, uh, there, there's this issue around access to protective, personal protective equipment for healthcare providers. You know the, the PPE um, crisis, and so uh, there's a lot of difficult decisions being considered around how do we allow, or how how do we make sure that 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 um, resource can be sustainable through this? Um, and there's a lot of concerns that it's not going to be, um, but but we may have to change how we go about doing things and, and make different decisions based around just simply the matter that we need to keep masks. We, you know, we, we need gloves. And so that's going to have some downstream effects that might um, be critical for other people. It's going to seem as if I'm making light of things, but um, that makes me want to talk about toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> what are our individual ethical obligations when we consider uh, circumstances that we face ourselves in where we're worried we're concerned about ourselves and our families but at the same time we are potentially disadvantaging those that need these items more so you mentioned really important things like um, medically adequate face masks mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then all the way down to another box of pasta or another roll of toilet paper from the grocery yeah. store and those shelves are cleaned out but what are my ethical obligations when I'm weighing up? You know, do I really need this mask? Do I really need this roll of toilet paper? Surely someone else has a greater claim to this. But then how do I evaluate that claim? Um, and what about my own duty to myself? I, I would even take it one step further in that um, in order to even think to ask that question, much less begin to come to an answer, there has to be a, a removal of the element of fear, which which I think is is as pandemic as the pandemic itself right now. Um, if we're if we're making these sorts of, of evaluations and assessments and decisions and purchases out of fear, they are by nature going to be irrational. And and so 
if I were to take a giant step back and say, no, I don't need 96 rolls of toilet paper over the next two weeks. But because I'm so afraid of what is to come, it's so uncertain. Um, I don't know where to look for reasonable, logical information and or leadership. That terrifies me. And if I'm terrified, I we, we go into self-preservation mode, you know, and, and that might mean making sure that I have enough to get me through this uncertain time. And I don't know how long that's going to last. So, yes, of course, I do need the, the 96 rolls, you know, and so it, it becomes circularly irrational. I think that's the second time you have uh, focused on the importance of leadership in this environment. I find that interesting because I, I, I think many of us will have really personal and uh, subjective reactions to those that we deem leaders in the world around us, whether it's at, at a large international scale or it's, it's literally looking at our neighbors and seeing someone who's um, taking charge of things, whatever needs to be done. So however we define leaders, how do leaders themselves become equipped to be our ethical guides? And what expectation is it reasonable to have of them that they should be ethically competent in some way? That, that's where I think ethics, just broadly speaking, is, is such an underutilized um, skill set and, and, and discipline. Uh, I, I think people often equate leadership with expertise, uh, and, and I think they're very different things. You know, uh, a good leader is not one that knows everything and does everything and can do everything and will do everything and controls everything. You know, the best kind of leaders are the ones that know how to obtain all of those things that are needed. And, and how, how do I um, utilize the, the skills and people around me um, to elevate everyone? There, I think there's a certain ethical component of that and, and a certain ethical humility to that, to recognizing that I don't, I, I may be in the leadership position, but I don't have to know it all. And, and, and if I try, I will inevitably fail because I, I know deep down I don't know it all. And so... Um, recognizing that that I don't have it all. And I think that's an important first step to, to that leadership component. We're in the crisis now. So now is mm -hmm. not the time to um, try to instill these qualities because we right. need to deal with what's at hand. Right. Uh, thinking ahead, though, is, is this an opportunity 
to reframe in the future the creation of more ethically minded leaders or to perhaps extend the work that is being done um, so far as this work is being done to ensure that our leaders do have some kind of capacity for or training in being more ethical about um, about their leadership practices. I would love to see that. I, I would love to see that starting in fourth grade, you know, of of how do we go about making uh, responsible decisions? You know, it's not it's not a matter of indoctrination of here's how you make the right decision, but how do we go about making decisions? And and that's a totally different discipline and a whole totally different skill set. I, I completely agree. I think um, I, I think I think there will uh, be the opportunity for that in in the future. Um, I hope so. I think. Um, you know, I've been talking to, to several people about this, but I think on the other end of this, there, this is exposing many different um, fractures in our in our ecosystem, in our in our society, in our communities. And as devastating as that is now, I think I think in the end, um, there will be a lot of opportunities to make things better. And 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 what you speak to there of of ethical leadership, I think is um, is certainly one. It may be too soon. Um, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Sure. You know, but yet, inevitably, there's going to be. Um, we can't avoid the political recriminations that are um, happening and will yeah. unfold. Not least because we're in a presidential election year. I'm worrying. Uh, sorry, wondering instead about the potential for ethical reflection and considerations afterwards less about the politics of our response to the situation which is its own category what might that look like from your perspective in six 12 months time when we look back at this and try to learn some ethical lessons what could that look like i i i struggle with that um i'm not sure i'm not sure what that's going to look like really um i think there, there's the idealist in me that that wants to to give a good answer, um, but I think the realist in me thinks that there are so many other things that are going to happen before that um, of of this sense of of reckoning, and we're going to go through these various stages of finger pointing and blaming. And um, again, I I hope that we can get past that portion of it as quickly as possible and really start to think about how do we how do we think about this for the next time because this that's the new norm is this is not going anywhere um this is the first this is unlike anything i've ever seen in my life but i am confident that it's not going to be the last and and i think that kind of context i think might be enough to snap us out of this short term thinking of well, it, you did it versus I did it this last time, but what about the next time? And I think continuing to be forward-looking um, at least at least focuses us in a way that that allows for that ethical deliberation more than if we only focus on the past.
I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Jacob Dahlke, the Director of Nebraska Medicine's Office of Healthcare Ethics. Our conversation today is being recorded via Skype. Uh, why, don't, why don't we try and ethically tackle some real situations that people may be dealing with right now, whether sure. with, in a healthcare environment or yeah, um, sure. related to their health? What might we think about ethically where someone is constantly invading your space and not maintaining a six foot distance? It depends on where you are, actually. You know, one, one, one thing that I, uh, I, I give a variety of presentations, you know, the basics of bioethics and values and, and how we go about thinking about those things. And, um, you know, one thing that I often bring up is, is this notion of what, what are the most important things to us? You know, what are our values? And I, I do think uh, to a certain extent that depends on where you were raised, right? What, what is your community in which you were um, raised? And, and that can have an impact, not, not on what are your values, because I think there's a, to a certain extent those are universal, but, but how I prioritize them can, can certainly lead to different consequences in a, in a situation. And, and I think that's what you're speaking to with this social distancing of if we all agree that six feet is the appropriate amount of space and now I see someone that has invaded that, I have a choice, you know, am I going to, as, as a good Midwesterner, am I going to continue to to prioritize kindness towards those people around me versus maybe telling them the harsh truth and, and offending them or hurting their feelings? I think we in the Midwest tend to prioritize that kindness over honesty. So uh, that might be a harder thing for us here in Omaha and, and in the Midwest, as opposed to uh, New York, where if you get in my space, I'm going to let you know that you're in my space. And, and I will feel no guilt or shame about that because this is your problem. You need to get out of my space. You know, so are, are, are people from New York uh, kind? Of course they are, right? But, but if in a particular situation in which they have to make a choice, I would venture at least that most of them would agree, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the brutal truth and, and you're in my bubble, so get out of my bubble. You know, um, Midwesterners, we might struggle with that a little bit more. And so I, I think that's going to that's gonna be an important consideration of, of how do we go about navigating that. What about hand washing? Um, and I, I think I've been reading a little bit about the difference between encouraging adults to hand wash and encouraging children to hand wash. Mm. And, and some of what I've been reading suggests that adults are told to hand wash because it's a way to maintain um, their own safety. Mm-hmm. Kids are told to hand wash because it's a way for them to do a kindness to others by not running the risk of spreading, you know, germs. And so why the difference? You know, that's a good question. I, I actually haven't heard it phrased in that way. Um, that's new to me. It, it makes certainly, it makes sense. Um, but I guess I think of it as both for both, right? I mean, I think of my own hand washing as, as a personal protective measure, but also one in which I'm, I think helping other people, you know, I, I've been telling my two kids sort of the same thing. You know, I don't, I don't think I filter it 
of, you know, we need to be nice to each other, right? We do need to be nice to each other, but but I think that there's a certain level of protection. I don't, I don't know if maybe that has something to do with this particular um, virus that, that, you know, as we've noticed, uh, kids are particularly better off in, in terms of our outcomes. And so maybe maybe there's less of a focus on that, um, that maybe they they are not as at risk and therefore we don't need to focus on it. I, I don't know. I, I guess I haven't heard of it that way, though. Wondering, too, about testing. It's one thing listening to the medical advice, so so clearly there's uh, the medical advice about what to do. Um, again, wondering about maybe some of the ethical considerations, knowing we do not have that many tests available. How do I triage my own sense of feeling well or not feeling well so that I don't waste people's time, resources, and valuable tests at this stage? That's a... That's a really a really challenging portion of this or a component of this, and I think I'm certainly walking out of my my element here because this is you know leading more into public health and epidemiology and things like that. But uh, it's it, it is definitely a challenge for us to um, understand and combat a virus that that we know so little about, and and one of those things that we don't know very much about is how common is it? You know, you go back to the war metaphor, you know, it's, it's hard to, to fight a battle blind and it's hard to fight a battle. If you don't know how many troops are on the other side, you know, it's really hard to make my own plans. And so we're already uh, behind on, on that component of it or on that portion of it. There's a lot there. There's a lot to that. I think another difficulty people are facing about what is the right thing to do is how do we how do we interact with loved ones and balance the fact that we can harm people uh, physically and emotionally by not attending them you know physically and emotionally being there for them with them physically and we know that social isolation is its own form of of harm to people psychologically and emotionally and yet we also know that social distancing is uh, a necessary response to this public health challenge. So they're two competing harms. And how do we perhaps as individuals kind of work out what's, what's the right thing to do? I, I think uh, one step in that direction is to recognize um, the temporality of those decisions, right? It, this, this notion of social distancing, again, I, I think, I hope, is not permanent, right? That we don't forever ed- forevermore as human beings socially encounter each other within six feet of, you know, I, I think this is a temporary thing in order to accomplish a, a singular goal. And once that goal is accomplished, then then we can go back, hopefully, to the, to the way things were. Um, so I think that recognition is important because... Um, it is inconvenient. It is isolating. It is uh, mentally taxing. And and for those of us who um, might already be mentally taxed, this on the top of that can 
can perhaps be too much. And so I, I think we need to, as a community, I think we need to, to be particularly sensitive um, to this because before all of this, I could, I could perhaps hide my pain when it comes to social isolation a little bit better uh, than I might be able to now. And so, so I think we, we just need to really be uh, hyper aware of, of what this is doing to people and, and what this might be doing to, um, to others. talked a little bit about fear earlier and so there may be uh, we talked about distancing we've talked about testing uh, and choices that have to be made um, another challenge that I think many people are hearing about and they might be afraid of is the idea that we simply do not have enough medical beds in hospitals to handle thousands of people that fall sick because of coronavirus given the potential fear, how are doctors, how, how are medical professionals who are used to making medically grounded triage decisions, how do they go about that ethical triage? Yeah, this, this is a, a topic that I've um, spent a lot of time talking to a lot of other doctors and, and healthcare administrators and, and things like that about. Um, this is the, this is the harsh reality of, of those uh crisis standards of care that that we were talking about a little bit earlier you know with the recognition that under normal circumstances there is a an incredible weight and deference to to individual patients to to really sort of promote their own autonomy right to to promote the uh their own independence and and their ability to make their own decisions about their own lives and and that is always um under the context resource in question that it's even available but what this particular pandemic is, is exposing, um, especially in places like Italy, uh, is that those decisions aren't even getting that far into the, into the process, um, where it's, it, it's simply not able to be an individual patient's decision anymore because the resource just simply is not there. Uh, and so sort of that process of, of developing how do we go about making those decisions then that becomes all the more relevant and all the more important, and 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 why we rely then on, on still standards, right? This is not this is not anarchy or, or chaos. We don't just throw everything out the window just because we're in a war, right? Uh, there are still standards that we have to follow, and and those standards are different than how we typically would um, adhere to them, such as putting a premium on the decision to save as many lives as possible promote the most amount of good to the most amount of people. And so if we lead with that as a principle, how we go about making those decisions, I think can still be predictable and still be fair uh, and still be well-reasoned. 
while acknowledging that they're not how we would go about making them in any other circumstances. Which is not to say, and maybe it is to say, that in times of crisis, what we might think of as our ethics are different than our ethics might be in the times of calm and ease. And maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's an unfair way to think about ethics because ethics don't respond to you know, times are good or times are bad. Um, ethics are consistent. It just depends um, you know, how they're applied to the situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it, they are similar to to values in that sense, right? Of certain search, certain situations might require us to reprioritize those values that we have. Certain situations might require us to reprioritize which ethical standards we prioritize. You know, and so it's not that we have have developed this brand new way of thinking and way of a brand new way of making medical decisions in, in this pandemic. Um, the reality and the context requires us to prioritize those standards that, that already were there, um, but they require a different order. The people you work with, the medical professionals that you're working with, um, they have you as a resource. Where might people listening? Where might um, other leaders in the community? Where can they turn if they're looking to make ethical decisions and they they don't know how to do that for themselves? So, what other resources might you suggest to people to help them make decisions? I honestly, I think the the first place they need to look uh, is internally, uh, and the reason I say that is is um, me being able to identify those values inherent in me, what I feel is most important in my life, uh, that's going to go a long way in in how I view myself through this whole process and how I view the decisions that I make. So I, I think that's the first place we need to start is, is internally. Um, with regards to ethics, uh, decision-making ethics in a pandemic, I mean, that, 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 becomes a fairly specific academic <laughs> subject, you know. So in terms of, of those types of academic resources, I mean, I, I think, you know, there are places like the Hastings Center uh, out of Georgetown University. Uh, the University of Washington has tremendous resources when it comes to healthcare ethics. From an academic perspective, there's, there's plenty of places like that. But really, I think talking to your local healthcare professionals is, is probably a great place to start. Because like I said, the way that we are going about doing this within Omaha and within Douglas County and within the state of Nebraska is different than how um, they're doing it in Florida. And we are likely to see a different outcome because of that. I don't know what that looks like. I, I, I really don't. But uh, how we go about making decisions, which is that ethical decision-making framework, how we go about doing that um, is going to matter. And so it's important if I, as a, a member of the local community, am unsure of, of how we're going to go out doing that, um, engaging as, as best as we can in this, in this time, but engaging as best as we can with our local uh, public health professionals and, and uh, healthcare professionals, I think is, is a great place to start. We're all having to adapt really quickly and flexibly mm -hmm. to um, a difficult situation. And I'm wondering if, as you look at 
this situation as it unfolds, but looking at it through an ethical lens, if you've been surprised by anything? Uh, I, I think it's probably um, clearly biased, <laughs> uh, but I, but I, I am incredibly uh, impressed with how my organization has has gone through this. Um, the the amount of people that have put in the amount of hours to prepare a community for something like this. It, you, Nebraska is at the front of this. We, we don't know how this is going to play out. There's, there's still a lot of unanswered questions and, and we're just now, you know, ramping up in terms of the positive tests that we have in this community. So uh, I have no illusions about predicting how this is going to go for us, but I, I can say with uh, an extreme amount of confidence that however it plays out, it will be because we prepared the best that we could. And in order for that to, to happen, I think everyone has had to just check their egos at the door, right? I walk in and I'm the ethicist and therefore I have the answer. It's not going to work that way. Nothing's going to get done in that meeting because we all have to recognize that everybody plays their part in this and um, everybody's input is, is valuable. And, and that's really allowed us to get a lot of work done to prepare for this. I've been in conversation with Jacob Dahlke, the director of Nebraska Medicine's Office of Healthcare Ethics. Jacob, join me in conversation today via Skype. Jacob, thank you so much for making the time to chat with me about ethics and uh, especially during this coronavirus pandemic. Thank you. Stuart, this was a pleasure. I, I appreciate it very much. Thanks. just gone a little fuzzy and wobbly spotty you're not doing it right you know it's supposed to be weird that's the end of this week's show our sound engineers are mark mcgore and dalimar mctizic i'm your host and producer Stuart chittenden live's radio show is an executive production of squish talks find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Lives Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Music